0: Welcome back to another episode of the Lead with Data podcast with myself, Rena Gami In addition to being a podcast host, I also lead a business intelligence and data analytics recruitment practice. This is the podcast where I bring you some of the most talented data leaders who have contributed in significant uplift of BI and data analytics capabilities in some of the most progressive organizations across Australia. I want to share the stories of their careers, challenges they faced and the reality of how the recent pandemic may or may not have impacted their roles and responsibilities in their current organisations. Here's where we get to learn what some of the professionals in this field are doing right now. Welcome back to another episode of Lead with Data. On the show today, I'm joined by Claire Kitching. She's the General Manager of Data Insights and Analytics for Treasury Wine Estates. Claire's got a really interesting background, started off from a mathematical data science route, um, and has uh, worked for, in consulting for quite some time and then more recently uh, worked for a couple of uh, well-known organisations. We talk today about a topic um, which I think will be really relevant to e- everyone that's listening, uh, very much around um, building the protocol and patterns when delivering data projects. Now, this just doesn't apply to data transformation projects, this also applies to your traditional internal data function as well. Uh, We cover things like, um, you know, what what sort of protocols we need to consider, what does a protocol look like, uh, benefits of um, and why it helps, you know, how you can avoid um, hampering creativity and change, and some of the things that you need to consider as well. Um, I also touch on some of the elements around her role as a leader, how she got to where she got to, um, and also um, shared some insights into how she's grown her career from focusing more on the data science side into more of a broader leader across data analytics. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks for having me, Rena. I know that we've been trying to organized this for quite some time so I'm really excited and I'm glad we managed to squeeze this in uh, particularly for this season which is obviously the um, the female leaders um, session that you know I'm sort of trying to run and and get you know a group of female leaders to really showcase um, some of the amazing stuff that they've done across this space in data. Um, I don't know if you've experienced it but the more and more I talk to female leaders they, um, they tend to shy away from Putting themselves out there, um, you know, and and showing, you know, what they've done. I think they're. I found they're they're just inherently quiet achievers who like to do and not like to say. So um, it's it is really good to to have people like you on the show to to be able to represent, you know, this amazing group of individuals. So thank you so much.
1: I'm happy to be here, Rena.
0: No problems. Well, look as I do with all my guests, um, look, I'll get you to. Give me, you know, a quick brief uh, background um, of yourself um, and then we can jump, you dive into the topic. Sounds great.
1: So a little bit about me. Well, I have always been um, uh, into maths. I've studied maths at university, studied electrical engineering at university, um, started off at undergrad at Melbourne Uni, but then uh, got a scholarship to study maths at Cambridge. Um, And I think one of the luckiest things has been that um, data and data science has really grown dramatically over my career. So after Cambridge, I uh, worked for McKinsey & Company based out in London. And when I joined, they were saying, "Look, we're just about to start up uh, our our data practice here, but come and join, and, and it's going to start to grow." And so I spent the first five years at McKinsey working on sales and marketing type projects, working as telcos started to think about how do they predict churn, how do they uh, prevent churn,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and also worked across many industries around retail, uh, manufacturing, oil and gas, um, and then was very lucky that. Uh, McKinsey acquired Quantum Black, now their um, AI arm, and moved to help that one grow. So, when I started there, there were 40 people, and when I left, uh, over 400. Um, I came back to Australia in May 2020 and have been working for Wesfarmers for a couple of years, building out their shared data asset across their retail divisions, Mm -hmm. and now I'm at uh, Treasury Wine Estates as the General Manager of Insights and Analytics there, and helping to build our uh, data and analytics
0: practice at Twee. Oh, perfect! Thank you so much for that. And it sounds like, yeah, you've um, you've had obviously a great career and working for some really great organizations. So, uh, look forward to um, sharing some of those um, insights with with the with the um, group today. Um, so, in terms of, I suppose, career highlights, and I always like to ask this because I think you know sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. There could be many, but maybe a couple of um, career highlights that you feel have shaped who you are now.
1: Yeah, if I look back, there's probably been three which I can point to. Um, The first one was a few years into my career, and I was on a really big project on promotion optimization for an American grocery retailer. And it involved technology as well as training and change management. And that whole project really showed me that the scale of teams involved in data science and analytics projects is immense. But also that there's a role for everyone and so no matter what you enjoy you can find um, what you want to work in and go for it. I think the second big part of my career was coming back from my first maternity leave and this was a real eye-opener. I went on maternity leave for seven months mm-hmm. and before I went the large corporates were not using any open source software. By the time I came back R and Python were were um, being used by everyone and like you even had major UK banks allowing this this development and it really showed me that the area of data and data science changes a lot and you really need to get skilled at learning um, and really be be open to change and adapting to that. And I think the third career highlight was really joining Quantum Black. It was in its infancy when I joined, um, but it was fantastic to be able to work with the founders and shape the way we worked. And it really showed me that having um, a good way of working and an agreed way of working around a multidisciplinary team can be really hard to develop, but can really help um, you create scale and a sense of culture in the team. Um, And this is probably what we're going to talk a little bit more about later today.
0: Perfect, perfect. And look, I suppose um, based on, um, you know, the, the sort of theme of this particular season, which is around, you know, female leadership um, and, and taking those lead sort of roles across data, at what point in your career did you sort of identify that, you know, you were ready to take that move or, or what was it that sort of led you into taking more sort of management leadership level positions?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Rena. because I think it's one that as, as someone technical, you really sort of struggle with, oh, do I want to leave some of that technical knowledge behind or yeah. do I want to, <laughs> and do I want to, to manage? I think um, it was uh, sort of midway through my time at McKinsey working out uh, how do you have more impact with what you're doing? and being able to shape shape things. And I think working on a couple of big projects, seeing that actually as you sort of step up into a management role, you can shape how things are done and have a different voice at the table. And I think my time at Quantum Black um, in the first sort of six months there really cemented uh, being able to – it helps shape how how a company can grow and how how the culture can grow and I, and i really enjoyed that and i think now it's about how do i find the best leadership style and and keep on adapting to that as as the teams adapt and our as our um sort of goals adapt as well
0: yeah yeah and what would you say to somebody who's probably and and very common i think you know when you're going from being quite hands on quite technical to wanting to take that leadership or next position where you're probably not so technical and involved Um, what would you say to somebody who's kind of a little bit torn between that? What advice could you give them in terms of being able to let go?
1: Well, I think the first thing is, one, give it a go, because Mm -hmm. if you don't like it, you can always go back. (laughs) You know, all your years of technical knowledge are not going to to leave you. Uh, And I think the second one is to really step back and appreciate the different technical depths that your team will have.
0: Yeah.
1: I remember the one time with a team at Quantum Black and, and having an idea, of how, I had an idea of how things should be done, but having a discussion with one of the senior data scientists and them coming up with five different ideas, which I would never have thought of. It was really amazing to see, oh, actually, when you bring more people into the problem-solving you can get much more
0: creative answers. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, and look, you're obviously clearly really passionate when it comes to to data and, and you know, you, you've you been involved in some really exciting projects. Um, what are the things that you're most passionate about um, when it comes to data, I guess?
1: I love working in this field because of the pace of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just see you yeah. see it move so quickly. You need to learn. You need to find out more. Um, and, and you'll... You'll never be like this technical expert around everything. <laughs> so actually, seeing feeling like the need to constantly um, keep up, I quite I quite enjoy.
0: Yeah,
1: and I think the second part is. Seeing how ways of working change, it can take a long time to get people around you to sort of um, get on board and and it can feel like it's insurmountable, the effort that's required. Yes. But I think you, you see this slowly, slowly, and then all of a sudden a step change. And it's really good to look back and say, oh, actually, you know what, six months ago people weren't doing that and now we've been able to um, make that happen. And I, and I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And it's such a growing field. And I think organisations, um, and this probably ties in quite well with with some of the stuff we're talking about, a lot of organisations are going through these big data transformations, big projects, and, and you hear of ones that have gone really well, um, ones that haven't gone so well, ones where they have adopted a new technology and then realised that's not the technology for them, and then they've gone through a very expensive exercise and then gone back to... The drawing board to understand what the business actually needs. So I think there's varying versions of how these projects sort of end up transpiring. So um, you know, I think uh, yeah, absolutely, it's constantly changing. And one of the discussions I actually had recently with one of the the leaders that I was talking to was, how do you continue to demonstrate to the business, um, you know, the 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 need to continuously evolve your technology, but how do you also how do you also avoid the the expense and the cost that goes with that. Like that's something that's quite challenging, I think, because of how quickly things are changing. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. And it's also <laughs> how quickly things change. And do you know what? It's about having some of the basics in place to be able to adapt and change as you go. Um, but you are right. There is this continual question of actually, how do, do we... Um, uh, do we really need to change or do we just sort of slightly build on what we what we have? And, and that is a tricky one. And I think each company in each different situation will have a different answer for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I suppose in terms of the, the topic that we're sort of going to talk about today is really around, um, you know, driving um, and delivering successful data projects and building protocols and patterns that can help you do that. Um, so when you talk about Building protocols and patterns. What do you actually mean?
1: Well, let me give you an example away from um, data science. So when my daughter was quite young, she had to have a really serious operation. So we went with her um, uh, into the um, just before she was going to surgery and was being put to sleep. And in that room, there were several people, probably about 10, Mm -hmm. each with their own set of skills um, to bring. However, um, what went, went on there was that you had one person going through a checklist of, of seemingly basic but quite important pieces. Let's check the name of the person. Let's check the side of the body we're operating on, so on and so on. And this is an example of having a protocol, a series of tasks and responsibilities um, that, are, that are spread across a team that are documented to get things done and people know their role. Um, so, if I carry this over to data science, I think um, in a lot of projects, you're going to have a big and varied team. Um, you may have slightly different use cases, but there's going to be a lot of similarities. And so while carrying over code can seem straightforward or you know, there's a lot of talk about patterns for data ingestion and things like that, we also need to find ways to carry over some of the softer skills and enable a team to do well um, in the way they work with each other and this is what having a protocol is all about and this can take a lot of forms but it's really a combination of documented phases of a use case templates to enable and facilitate work and meetings um, and agreed ways of working between team members that have differing skills and backgrounds
0: yeah yeah and and how and why do you think it helps
1: From a team point of view, it really helps you go faster and build on experience rather than having to always redo the basics. So um, one of the things we found uh, at Treasury is that we want all parts of our business to sort of follow a same idea about how they're thinking about use cases. So having a template to capture the idea for a use case, what are the key questions you need to be able to document before you get going? For example, how's it going to generate value? Just having that helps us you know, understand this is what we need to get started. Let's get it down and let's get going and also allows different people across the team to go and do that with different parts of the business so we can scale. From a business point of view, um it, it really allows scale while managing risk. Um, I look back on one project I worked on at Quantum Black and actually in the first couple of weeks it went horribly wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had a chat with one of my mentors and he, he pulled out one of the checklists we had and he asked me, okay, let's look down this and which one of these wasn't in place before you went ahead, Claire. Yeah. And and this was it was done in a nice way to think about actually how, how do we understand what 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 went wrong. And I think this was one of the first times I truly appreciated the help that processes can bring um, across differing teams and differing situations. Um, And now that I've got a team that's trying to scale, having a a repeatable process allows us to have key ways of approaching problems and similar approaches so that people get some consistency and enough um, similar questions to keep the project on track. Yeah. I think from a sort of, there's probably one more part that, that matters, and it's from a stakeholder point of view. Um, it's It can be quite hard to communicate to non-technical um, people yeah. what's going to go on in a data science project. And having a protocol can help you um, sort of frame to your stakeholders what's going to happen um, and give them some certainty over the project um, view as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when building out these protocols, Claire, because Um, Quite often when I'm obviously talking to to leaders, um, one of the things that's quite important, you know, as part of your roles and and your functions is being able to tailor and customise the way you're delivering solutions to different parts of the business. How do you build a protocol that to some degree can be consistent but doesn't then just feel like to the person who's doing it, like, that they're just doing things for the sake of doing it that might not be so relevant to them. How do you build that? And because I think that's where a lot of leaders get stuck. Like it's it's it absolutely makes sense that having a protocol and a checklist and a process that you follow ensures that nothing gets missed. But where do they start? Like how do they know what could be a baseline protocol to begin with?
1: Yeah. So getting started um, is really a team approach mm-hmm. because I think from a from a leader's point of view. Um, you probably have a, a high level view of what's going on. But actually getting your team to write down, this worked well, this didn't work well, let's do that again um, can really help. So so starting out with your team to say, actually, let's look back at the last project that we did and what happened in it, what part really helped us, what didn't help us at all. Um, and then from there sort of saying, okay, these are the basic things things that we need. Yeah, And I think putting uh, around that, you do need a little view, okay, what's a project going to look like? And and having a bit of a a project mindset or use case mindset of, hey, we probably need to scope something. Then there's going to be some detailed work. We're going to test it with users and we're going to come back and and harden it. Uh, So there's probably some basic phasing you can put around then mixed with sort of a bottom up team approach. Because having a team develop this themselves is the key to getting it used again and again. If it just comes from from a leader or someone outside, you don't necessarily have the buy in or understanding of why you're doing things.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: I think to your point, as time goes on, some things may feel like it's just a a checkbox and maybe you don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the great thing around having a protocol is that you've got the basics set there and you can pretty easily see once you've done it a few times what's really working, what's not working, what's helping, helping. Well, it's not really adding to anything, so you can sort of test and learn um, as you go.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I suppose what you're what you're sort of saying um, is, if people or organisations or leaders don't necessarily have a protocol in place at the moment, it's not something that you'll do from day one and it will be perfect. It's actually something that will evolve over time. You'll you'll try something out. It may not be right. You may edit it. You may add some things. So I think it's almost don't disregard a protocol that you've put in place and if it hasn't worked the first time, don't assume it's not working. It's going to be sort of a bit of a work in progress until you figure out what applies to that business. Would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that that's right, Rina. It's about, it is an iterative approach. Yes. I find though probably what happens is people think there's a protocol and in their mind they've got what the protocol is. But then you speak to someone else on the team and in their mind, mind because of their different role, they've got the different protocol in there. Yeah. And actually writing it down would probably be one of the biggest steps forward that you need. And then you realize, oh, this is what you're thinking. This is what I'm thinking. That's why it never goes right at that stage. Yeah. Um, so I think getting getting a sort of um, a documentation of it and even if it's a light documentation can really, really help you and that you can continue to sort of iterate as you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and on that, um I mean a big part of data science, um, is being creative. Um, having, having too many protocols, do you believe, or what are your thoughts on, uh, that potentially hampering creativity and change? What are your thoughts on that?
1: So, um, creativity, you, you want to have the space to, to do create, to have, um, Uh, creativity and you want creativity where it matters. Mm -hmm. And so if you have the basics down pat, if you have templates for all the boring stuff like where's the value coming from, who are my stakeholders, how am I going to run this project, then there's no brain space that's needed on the basics and you can spend that on actually thinking through how are we going to address the problem, what are the different approaches, what are the different techniques, what do we want to test and have a lot more time for that creativity. So having some sort of structure around that will help. And it also um Um, helps uh, the team understand who needs to be involved for that creativity to really thrive and how do you get that diversity of thought? Because you can think about, well, actually, um, the data scientist may want to spend a lot of time on this, but the data engineer might have a lot to do and analytics lead um, might bring some creativity to it. So also, it can help structure um, uh, the diversity needed in bringing some of that creativity to life. Yeah, I think it also, from a change point of view, um, having something as a base lets you more easily change things because you can sort of pinpoint, hey, I'm going to change this and um, uh, move ahead with it. And your organisation and, and, and customers can also see um, some sort of consistency, but how you're going to adapt to them to uh, meet their needs as well.
0: Yeah. And how do you balance that with a team of people who might be, you know, data engineers who like to follow a set process, standard way of doing things versus, you know, team of data scientists or analysts who are really really creative. How do you create that culture? Because I think that's probably a big part of it too.
1: Oh, I think that is one of the biggest ones. And I I would look back at Quantum Black, uh, one of the biggest learnings um, we had in the early days there was that Actually, data engineers had a very clear idea of that what they wanted to do. Data scientists had a very clearer idea what they wanted to do. But these guys interface a lot. Yes. <laughs> and how do you actually create that more, more as a team? And I think a protocol really addressing this saying, hey, everyone does um, have a different role to play. And this is where the interfaces are. And you know what? Decision rights around these interfaces uh, are jointly made, not, not by um, one or the other. And I think I reflect this is becoming more and more important as the term data scientist, data engineer. That people have very different views on what that covers, yeah. um, and they continue to evolve. So I think having a an open conversation with the team around what is your role, where does it begin, end, and actually how are you involved in the whole um, use case, uh, really helps the team work better together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, the role of a data engineer has definitely changed. We've seen it change over the last, you know, five, six years where they used to be your traditional developers. They, they sort of get given, you know, um, a use case. They go and build it out. You get, you know, your data scientists to test it, to make sure it's working, you know, is it is it doing what it does? And I think the role of a data engineer has changed where they're now required more to kind of ask questions to ensure that they've understood what they're actually building, and is it going to do what, you know, the data scientists or the data analysts want it to actually do? Um, And we've noticed that, um, you know, a lot of roles that we've recruited in that data engineering space have required people who are comfortable having those conversations, who are happy to ask questions, to make sure that, you know, what they're doing is actually, like you said, you have, you know, the data scientists who want something, and then the data engineers think this is what they want, and then you end up with something that's not quite right, but, you know, I think that kind of bridges the gap. Um, so where their roles almost not sort of get blended from a technical perspective, but there's that sort of overlap.
1: Yeah, yeah, Irina, oh, you are you are totally right. And I think if you look at all these roles, um, what's expected of someone is quite broad. There's like quite deep technical skills, um, you know, in touch with the latest technology, in touch with the latest um, techniques, and then, oh, make sure all your soft skills are good so you're making sure that you're understanding what's going on, that you're understanding the business, that you're communicating this back. I mean, that that is a, a lot for everyone to take on and it takes time to develop. And this is where actually having protocol and process, especially around a lot of the... I'm going to say softer areas can really help. Yeah. What is the list of questions you need to ask? What yeah. is the template you need to fill in? Because then someone doesn't have to sit back and think, oh, "Okay, I don't quite know how to do this, but um, let me let me start from scratch." But but there's a really easy place for them to. Um, to leap from, and so uh, this is one of the reasons I think I'm a big uh, believer in in getting a protocol in place, uh, teamwork, but also for your stakeholders and giving people um, just a baseline for them to to jump off.
0: Yeah, but it's also really good for developing individuals in the team. Like you said, you know, you don't. It's not based on then one person um, showing them how it's done because that's how they've done it. There's actually. A, a process and a protocol that everybody's kind of following. Um so when you're sort of trying to develop individuals in your team, you're upskilling. Um like you said, you know, they don't have to um just figure it out. There's there's actually a process that they can they can go through.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And and a process they can go through to get the basics, but then also stop and say, well my experience shows actually, should we try and change these these different areas and and keep on improving what what we're doing.
0: Yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely um and in terms of when um you know you you are i think and we touched on it earlier on um in the in the discussion but when you're looking to put protocols and and processes in place for yeah say let's just say for somebody who doesn't necessarily have anything formalized what things do you think they need to consider
1: so i think a a few starting with a couple of things to sort of watch out for and and not (laughs) not do it would be There's no need to go overboard too early. So start with something light, saying, hey, this is how we think we're going to run run a use case um, and see how it goes. And each time you do something, you can get a bit more detail and you'll see someone do it well and say, oh, let's take that as a template. And my view is that it takes probably three times of doing something to get a good pattern. Uh, because you'll change the stakeholders, you'll work out, you know, what worked for one person actually isn't sort of um, transferable. And then I think the protocol is, is primarily for a team to work well together um, and the basics for a team and work out what parts of your protocol you need your stakeholders to know um, versus not because they don't actually need to know everything you'll realize that a lot of your stakeholders don't need to be involved in a little in all the nitty-gritty of um, data projects but there are some key areas where they need to be involved so it's thinking through actually how do you use your protocol to communicate well with your stakeholders but um, you don't need to communicate everything
0: yeah yeah Um, Because I think most people find it quite overwhelming because they feel like there's so much legacy, there's so many ways that people have been doing things for such a long time. Where do we actually get started and how do we start to shift that mindset?
1: Yeah, and I think part of it is... Uh, trying on one page to write down what you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I that like everyone on my to- team knows I'm a, such a visual person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, put your blocks in place. What do you think uh, going to happen? And it doesn't matter if it's if it's wrong. I think trying to write something down shows you whether you understand what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but also helps others sort of say um, question and help you develop it into something better.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And look, you've probably um, been into organisations and and I suppose as part of when you were at Quantum Black as well, where you were going into organisations where they perhaps didn't have protocols or patterns in place. Um, And often that can be a great time to start um, to introduce these. Um, How do you ensure that you don't sort of unsettle the existing way that they're doing things when you're bringing this in? You know, so if somebody... Was um, new to an organisation or looking to drive this initiative? What would your advice be on that?
1: Um, I would say that a lot of the time there is an unwritten and unsaid way of working. (laughs) So it's almost get it is really getting the team to write down
0: what they're doing. um,
1: What yeah, what they're doing, and then asking, is it working? What would you do to improve it? Yeah, and people very much have ideas of how they would would improve things. I remember starting at Treasury and having a discussion with each one of the data engineers and saying, okay, what, what do you think needs to change? And boy, did they have a long list to change? And you know, we changed some things. And then six months later, as our maturity improves, okay, what would you want to change now, guys? Yeah. And so um I think it's it's not something that is gonna stay static, but it's also okay, um, thinking about a protocol as part of a maturity uplift and you're not going to be um, doing things brilliantly in day one, but how do you slowly step up Up that? Yeah.
0: yeah. And and do you think this would be applicable to um, your more traditional BAU data function as well as data projects as well, or is this more exclusive to projects?
1: I think both. both. I think uh, BAU, they're probably skills to to be, um, you'd think there would be a, a very standard process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I would reckon that uh, most people haven't written it down and haven't said, hey, this is the way we work. But um, the, the benefit to, from, it, from doing it from a BAU point of view is if you have a new stakeholder that comes in, hey, this is how we work generally, it just so you, this, and let me give you a copy of our protocol and um, how we think about things and how this relates to you. It gives you something ready made to sh- to help people understand how you guys are working and how best to interact with um, your team.
0: Yeah, yeah, and look, I think from from an external perspective as well, and, and we talk to data professionals all the time. Being able to um, advocate that that's how an organization's function is set up, I think, is quite appealing to individuals coming in. So, as you know, the market is so tight at the moment, and we're all um, chasing this this talent. You know that that everybody's fighting for, um, and most of the time, you know, they're intrigued and interested in in how. Um, you know, businesses and, and functions are set up. And I think it's a real, um, a really attractive proposition for individuals, you know, going into a team where there is some protocols and patterns of, of ways of working because it does allow them to sort of understand what they're going into as well. Um, but also the opportunity that may be available to for them to be able to contribute and add value to as well. Whereas quite often we, talk to individuals who go into an environment and they expect there to be some protocols or processes, but there actually isn't and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And that that can be, you know, quite difficult for some individuals too. So I actually think even from an external perspective, it could really help in, um, you know, bringing, bringing people into, into that kind of environment.
1: Yeah, yeah. As we're doing lots of recruiting now, it is uh, yeah. useful to, to talk, talk through how, how are we working. But, and then I see the, the watch out is that you talk about your own, oh, we're doing a proof of value here. Or we're using this language. Are you like, oh, have I explained what all these things are? So you yeah. do have to be um, a little bit cognizant of the the jargon that you use in in some of this as well
0: yeah no definitely definitely um and look uh, again we we touched on this before but you know this um you know space and and environment data is is evolving so much and so quickly where do you see it going over the next kind of 3 to 5 years claire in, in your opinion oh wow <laughs> Big question. I've really either. thought about it, but how do you see it evolving? Whether it's in 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 um, in terms of data science or machine learning or you know AI or, or where do you sort of see it sort of evolving?
1: oh uh, so I think there's a there's a a few different um, aspects on this. I think um, uh, one. For, I'm in a consumer goods company, and I think consumer goods we are a little bit behind the curve, just in terms of because of our um, data. Comes from so many different sources. So, for in the consumer goods side, I think it is a real step change in the way our supply chains um, are using more AI, more um, advanced techniques to to operate more efficiently, and then also how we're working with our customers and understanding our consumers better, um, and and sort of sharpening up some of the skills there. I think more broadly, though. You've got a a real question around um, consumers and them and and their data. So are they going to continue to give give the data? Um, and I think the challenge for for organizations is to easily explain how they're using um, a consumer's data and what value a consumer is getting for providing that data and I think where um where companies are providing uh value to a consumer consumers will continue to provide that data and right. allow them to have it but it is uh it is going to get uh, trickier there and I think in Australia definitely the regulations that that make um it, that may be on the horizon around this uh, will also mean that there's a lot of work on the data side to and the governance side to make yes. sure that we're complying with it I think on the other side, the the opportunities here uh, with AI, um, uh, it's for for efficiency, for gains, for providing consumers more of what they're interested in, um, is quite exciting. And I think in Australia, um, you know, uh, all companies just going up the curve there and how they're using AI is is very exciting.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And um, and how do you keep yourself um, educated and current? And how do you, yeah, how do you ensure that you can, to some degree, you know, keep 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 at the front of what's going on? What resources, what things could you recommend?
1: Yeah, this is, this is always a challenge because you read one article and all of a sudden you think, oh my goodness, I am out of the loop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, so I try to do it in a, in a range of things. Um, one, going to different con- conferences and, and speaking to other people, uh, broadening my network um, with, with different people and just understanding... What are they doing, um, and and the reality of what people are doing? Because sometimes yes. it sounds like, oh, that sounds like you had it really easy, yeah. but, but you then you find out like what what um, the difficulty that it took um, around around things. Um, that's quite quite useful. Just just speaking to people, and then um, finding different articles. Be it through Wired, I think some of the consultancies, from McKinsey, Deloitte, have some really good sort of thought pieces, and then different. Um, uh, different mailing lists uh, yeah. that I feel I've kept for many, many years. So I have a very sort of machine learning based one, which is very technical that I read yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Um, so I think just getting um, a few of these and and continuing to not always read all of them, but every week spend a little bit of time knowing that actually I need to be uh, on top or current around what's, what's going on, knowing that I, I won't have the detail, but also reading headlines that, oh, actually, that's quite interesting. Let me try and delve into that a little bit more. Yeah. So a real mix of everything, Rena and I think that's one of the great things about this area is it's always evolving. You, you yeah. never feel like you're on top of everything, yeah. um, but you can always learn more, which is great.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think also by not getting too overwhelmed, like you said, around um, how much and, and how quickly things are changing, but really um, taking perhaps some of the the things that are really relevant to what you're working on now, your organisation and the things that potentially could, that you could drive value through doing right now. Because I think otherwise it can get quite overwhelming. And it, it's like you said, it's a lot of it is about perception. You know, this organisation seems like they're doing a great job with this. And then you kind of go, but these are the challenges that they've had and actually they're not doing so well in this area and starting so I think every organization has its challenges um and um, it's just it's just making sure that you don't get blinded by you know what looks good on the surface but then how much actually goes into that and whether or not your organization is ready or whether you have the resources or the capability to achieve that
1: oh you're, you're right Rena and I think finding peers, that you can have quite a good debate with is, is great. I've had a couple of um, articles where you read it and then you just have a chat to someone about it and they're like, oh, no, I totally disagree with that. That's it. This is what's going on and this is how you do it. And and I think that's um, quite useful because sometimes when you read uh, read articles about what's going on in, in data science or AI, it can seem very, hey, this is – this is the best thing ever. Whereas actually, when you discuss with people who are in the industry and working on different things, um, you get a different side and you can can sort of start to see when will things work, when won't things work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Claire. I mean, just so I sort of, uh, I've understood it correctly. Am I right in assuming you sort of come up more um, through that sort of data science field and then now you're sort of, Overseeing an entire function, so your data engineers, your analysts, your scientists—is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah, very much came yeah. up through the the maths and data science field. Uh, we don't yet, ha- we haven't yet hired our first data scientist at uh, <laughs> Treasury Wine Estates, but we'll be on the lookout very soon. But yeah, now I oversee the the building of our of our data platform, our data governance function, our data fluency, and and more insights and analytics.
0: Excellent, excellent. And I wanted to highlight that because. Um, you know I wanted to just demonstrate that even if you do come up that sort of um, data science route you can still um, you know thrive to to drive and lead teams as well across across different areas and not just be focused on one particular area so.
1: Oh Rena I think that is a a crucial thing to to tell people and and in and I suppose my experience there was no such thing as a data scientist when I um yeah. started at work um or when I started at university so I think the one advantage I've had over my career is oh just sort of make your own career and and choose your path and I do think um you've got a lot of skills and being able to transfer across, that across, be it from, you know, into more data platform, data engineering, or the other side into marketing and sales and more commercial or supply chain areas. Um, I think data um, is like, allows you to have so many career options. And, and that, that's one of the exciting parts of, of being in this field.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me on the show, Claire. An absolute pleasure. Um, I mean I I often get um, listeners who you know comment and and feedback on on the show Um, if they wanted to reach out and connect with you on LinkedIn are you happy for people to just connect with you and if anybody wanted to ask you any further questions or bounce any ideas things like that you're happy for for anyone to contact you via LinkedIn
1: yeah sure Rena happy to be contacted happy for uh, some more questions Um, so thank you so much for having me um, on your podcast
0: thank you so much Claire